0: Hi, Justin. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, Lindsay. How are you?
0: I'm super stoked to talk about this movie.
1: I am too. You know, when we do uh, each episode, we'll watch the movie uh, multiple times. And we did two, um, not heavy hitters, but definitely more serious films. And so it was nice to do something a little bit lighter. And The Wedding Singer seemed like a perfect pick. And also because we've been wanting to do a Sandler movie for quite some time.
0: And I think when we chose doing The Wedding Singer, like, we both really love this movie. and I think this kind of happened very naturally that we didn't realize how pivotal this movie was in his career. And so this episode's going to be a little bit different. We're going to go into as much depth in The Wedding Singer as we can, but also go into everything that kind of led up to The Wedding Singer and then kind of go into more of the evolution of Adam Sandler. But I did not realize how many people maybe aren't the biggest Sandler fans until we started talking about this more with people. So kind of really looking forward to going in depth.
1: Whatever we're working on, I'll post on Facebook, like this is what I'm watching or something. And um, there's generally not a lot of comments, but when I started posting Sandler movies, there was more comments than usual of people that were like, man, I just do not like Adam Sandler. I mean, I can understand if you've only seen a handful of Sandler movies, Um, sure, you can kind of pitch and him and say he's the guy that just does a goofy voice and does the same thing over and over again. And if you haven't investigated his other movies, I I can see how that would be your viewpoint. But um, in the last three weeks, I've watched something like 22 Sandler movies, and there's a lot to Adam Sandler. And this was just going to be a podcast on The Wedding Singer um, solely but then after we started watching all these Adam Sandler movies we thought you know let's just do this whole episode and talk about his career talk about his evolution and like you said you know The Wedding Singer is this pivotal point where I think he didn't started making changes in the storylines that he wanted to tell and the you know and broadening his comedy in some ways and but still maintaining a level of control mm-hmm. working with the same people there's a, you know and exploring different characters with uh, up and coming directors, a lot to talk about. So we're going to get into The Wedding Singer, but I think we're going to dedicate a good discussion of just talking about Sandler's career and, you know, the directions that he's uh, taken throughout the years, uh, you know, 30 years now, the guy's been doing comedy stuff.
0: So don't worry if you feel that you're not a Adam Sandler super fan. This episode is going to be something that's more educational on where he's coming from, and if you love The Wedding Singer, we're definitely going to get into some of our favorite elements of the film, what makes it work. Don't worry if you're not an Adam Sandler fan. Maybe you will be after this episode. Or if you're not, that's fine, too.
1: Yeah. As long as you continue listening to our uh, podcast, <laughs> even if, you, if you're if you turned off by Adam Sandler. Yeah. You know, don't pigeonhole us like you did Sandler. Yeah. And if you get exhausted uh, with us talking about Adam Sandler and The Wedding Singer... Um, it's not going to get much easier for you once we get into our picks of the week, which we continued on with our Sandler Fest here. Um, and we actually, this is the first time, I think, in an episode where we've chosen movies that were relatively newer. Um, and by newer, I mean like came out within the last
0: 10 years. Well, for my pick of the week, I did a movie from 2009 called Funny People with Seth Rogen and Adam Sandler.
1: I really liked that you picked this movie. It's a very like meta type. Adam Mm -hmm. Sandler movie. Mm
0: -hmm. And what did you go with for your pick?
1: Just go with it from 2011, uh, which is a movie that uh, I knew really nothing about. Just kind of watched it blindly when I was going through a lot of uh, Adam Sandler movies that I hadn't seen before. And this one really stuck out to me. It was probably one of the more pleasant surprises I've had watching movies in a long
0: time. Once the world figured out that Jennifer Aniston is really funny and not just from Friends it was it was a beautiful day when that happened because she she shines in a, a lot of comedies and especially when she's opposite Adam Sandler. I just wanna watch a bunch of like comedy movies <laughs> with Jennifer Aniston. And they're and they're out there, so I plan yeah.
1: on doing so. As always we'll round things out with our Murray moment. But before we get into our first clip from the wedding singer, Lindsay, can you just give us a brief summary, your interpretation of what this movie's about?
0: So Robbie Hart is the liveliest, sweetest wedding singer in all of New Jersey in 1985, even set to marry who he thinks is the love of his life in just a week. But when Robbie stood up at the altar, performing the world's most romantic job doesn't come so easily anymore. Seeing his despair and wanting to help, his newfound friend Julia, who caters the same wedding events as him, asks Robbie to play her upcoming wedding. As the two become closer friends, they begin to fall for each other. But there's still that pesky thing of Julia soon to be marrying a self-involved jerk, and Robbie's got to win her over before that happens.
1: This is a nice little story, and I think too um, relatively original. Like I don't, I don't know um, exactly how common wedding singers are these days I actually don't know how common they were in the 80s i've never really been to a wedding where there's an actual person that's dedicated to singing weddings usually there's a dj there's a more con- convincing uh, story built around the sandler movie and it's you know kind of endearing and i like that it takes place in the 80s before a million movies did movies that took place in the 80s we'll go to a clip we'll come back we'll talk about the wedding singer
2: so you guys are off to a great start don't you think I mean, Cindy showed up, so right away, Scott, you got to be pretty psyched, right? Hey, buddy, I'm not
1: paying you to hear your thoughts on life. I'm paying you to sing.
2: Well, I have a microphone, and you don't. So you will listen to every damn word I have to say! You know, it's funny. Some of us will never, ever find true love. Like take, for instance, me. And I'm pretty sure that guy right there. And that lady with the sideburns. And basically everybody at table nine. Uh But the worst thing is that me, fatty, sideburns lady, and the mutants over at table nine, We'll never ever find a way to better the situation because apparently we have absolutely nothing to offer the opposite sex. Uh, huh. uh. You are the
1: worst wedding singer in the world, buddy.
2: Sir, one more outburst. I will strangle you with my microphone wire. You understand me? Now let's cut this stupid cake because I know the fat guy's going to have a heart attack if we don't eat again soon. And while we do that, here's a little mood music for you. Sydney and Scott are newlyweds. Open it, He loves her, but she loves this guy right here. And he loves somebody else you
1: just can't win.
2: Until the day you die, uh, this thing they call love uh, is going to make you cry. I hate you. I've had the blues, the reds, and the pinks. Uh, one thing for sure. Love stinks? Love stinks!
1: Yeah, yeah. In researching Sandler, I found so many reviews where critics have often called Sandler... Uh, lazy. Um, But in his filmography, he's anything but. I mean, the guy's got 30 years of producing, starring, writing, having a hand in just about all the movies that he's done. It's interesting to me, the strong work ethic that he has dates back all the way to the late 80s, early 90s. And also, too, I think Sandler is a good actor, and I think it's somewhat surprising to some people. But Sandler's one of those comedians who had an interest in acting early on, chose to leave his home, go to NYU, enroll in college to study acting. And though comedy was something that, you know, he thought that he excelled at early on, being an actor was always something that he had his sights on. It is wild to think back of, like, most people know Sandler from Happy Gilmore or... Billy Madison or SNL, it's wild. He's done so much stuff in 30 years. But um, I think even early on, you know, he came out of the gate with a lot of humor that not everybody was doing at that time it was pretty unique and pretty original, no matter how silly or dumb you might think some of this
0: stuff is. It's probably not surprising to a lot of people that Adam Sandler was known as the funny kid. He wasn't trying to be the center of attention growing up, but he was always trying to get people to laugh with early inspirations like Bill Murray, Rodney Dangerfield, Mel Brooks, Caddyshack, you know, all of these things um, were big influences on him. And he wasn't thinking that he could have a career in comedy, really, until his brother Scott encouraged him to look into maybe doing stand-up. And at 17, he did just that. And he started doing spontaneous gigs um, around Boston comedy clubs just in the surrounding area. And he started doing pretty well and thought, okay, maybe I could make a career in this and thought, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to major in acting. And that's what he did. In 1984, he enrolled in NYU, the Tisch School of Arts. And this is where he met one of his first uh, and biggest comedy collaborators, Tim Herlihy, who's written, gosh, what is it? At least over 20 of his movies? Yeah,
1: it's like a a large majority. Yeah,
0: (laughs) the majority of. Um, Just by happenstance, Tim and Adam became roommates and really hit it off and started bonding over the same early influences, even doing, you know, Scooby-Doo impressions and dumb jokes. Well, Tim started to write these down. Now, Tim was a business major and Adam was acting. He wanted to be the next Eddie Murphy. So as Tim is writing down all of these jokes, eventually, around their sophomore year, he creates a full stand-up act for Sandler. And you might think, being kind of the funny kid, always trying to get a laugh out of somebody, that maybe someone like Adam Sandler would blow off school a little bit. But the truth is, the guy was super focused. He describes himself as not really relaxed in college. He always made time for friends. But he and Tim together did have a lot of initiative in writing, but he started to blow up around the comedy clubs more and more around New York.
1: It's very wild to me to think like, you blindly get this college roommate and then uh, this person goes on to work with you for the next 30 years.
0: Before Tim and Adam graduated in 88, Tim would head off to law school and Adam would focus on TV. By this point, Sandler had already done four episodes of The Cosby Show, so as both Hurley He and Sandler head off into different avenues of life, Sandler is still contacting Hurley He to write jokes for him, but he's going off in the TV direction and Tim starts finding it to be more fulfilling to be a comedy writer than starting his law career. Along with The Cosby Show, Sandler also would have a recurring role on MTV's, if anybody out there remembers, the first game show on MTV called Remote Control. He was known as Stud Boy and the Trivia Delinquent. Um, This is where he would meet Dennis Leary and Colin Quinn. So you see along the way... Sandler keeps acquiring these creative partners and friends that he would later still keep using to this day. In 89, Sandler has a pretty big break. He has his first starring role in a motion picture, which he also co-writes, called Going Overboard. Um, I think that will be forever streaming for free on YouTube if you want to check it out. It was a commercial flop. Alan Covert, one of Sandler's also long-running friends, is in that as well. It's not the greatest movie ever made, but you can believe that once Sandler became famous, that thing sure was released on video.
1: I always recognized it as the, like many, many years ago, it was like after Billy Mann had go more... It was like the 99 cent movie, like one of the early 99 cent bins at Walmart, $2 movies.
0: If you love Sandler, give it a watch. I did. I'm happy that I did. But obviously, Sandler had more to offer. So he's still doing stand up at this point, too and has one of the luckiest breaks that one could ever hope for. Comedian Dennis Miller sees one of his stand-ups one night. Everything that I've read about this like he basically badger's Lauren Michaels into looking into Adam Sandler and being like you got to check this guy out. I think that was in 89 or like late 89, and as of 90, Sandler is hired as an SNL writer. By 1991, he becomes a featured player, and by 93, he becomes a full-fledged cast member. And for some people, this is one of their favorite eras of SNL. This is Chris Farley, David Spade, Adam Sandler. This is a really amazing time for SNL, depending on your sense of humor. Some people weren't the biggest fans of what would be called sophomoric, juvenile type of style that SNL kind of went into during this time. Now, it wasn't Lauren Michaels, but it was the head of NBC that decided it was time to let Sandler and Chris Farley go at the same time in 95. And maybe that seems wackadoo to you guys out there, but to NBC, it needed to happen. They needed to get some integrity back into SNL. Think what you want. Um, Those are some really glorious years, no matter what your style of humor is. It was time for Sandler to make a transition anyway. But before his departure... Sandler would bring in his old college roommate, Tim Hurley, to become a writer on SNL, and Hurley would stay on as head writer until 1999 on Saturday Night Live.
1: Yeah, this was a pretty golden era for SNL, and I was reading that some cast members Uh, got really pissed at Adam Sandler, not because of uh, personality wise, but because they would work really, really hard on a particular skit or a character. And he seemed to so effortlessly like would go out and do a opera man or like Cajun man. And not only would it kill, but like he would, you know, he was, he was, he became a fan favorite. And, um, you know, these things that just seem like really ridiculous, to somebody, it's just like, oh, that's like the worst idea possible. Like Cajun man, he just, he's just <laughs> <Cajun> like, man. <laughs> he just wears a straw hat and talks in like a Cajun accent. But Sandler was able to take these characters and make them like beloved and, you know, eventually became one of the, the top draws on Saturday Night Live. And I think a lot of it, you know, cast members being pissed by being jealous of the way he was able to like so effortlessly get laughs out of people with something uh, seemingly so silly and juvenile.
0: And that would be kind of the springboard or what would begin his movie career is that style of humor. That's what eased him into 1995's Billy Madison. And this was the first screenplay that Tim Hurley, he had done. He and Sandler had no idea how to write a screenplay. They pitched it to Lauren Michaels, who absolutely hated the idea for Billy Madison, but only a few months later, after getting a treatment ready for this, they sold it to Universal. I think Universal wanted to rewrite, so they went to an outside person, and eventually, I think it all reverted back to the original screenplay for Billy Madison.
1: I think Sandler said they kept the O'Doyle rules. That was an outside writer. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That was the only thing that they kept.
0: Now Billy Madison was a decent success for the studio. It doubled its money. So the following year, Sandler would come out with two films. The first being Happy Gilmore was meant to be a test for Sandler's viability with audiences. Could he recreate, you know, his success on SNL and with Billy Madison? And with Tim Hurlihy writing this one as well, he and Sandler started to develop this creative process, and that was to, you know, hang out with a purpose, and to write. And it was if a gag made them laugh, it was in the script. If it didn't have sea legs at all, totally cut out. This was when they were just throwing everything out that they could and seeing what worked. Now, Happy Gilmore was even more of a success than Billy Madison. What followed that up was the action buddy comedy with Damon Wayans' Bulletproof. Bulletproof didn't fare as well. It still was a success, but pretty moderate compared to Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore. You know, for a buddy comedy, I don't mind Bulletproof. I I like Damon Wayans a lot. I think that they play pretty well off of each other in that movie.
1: Yeah, looking back on it, you, you would think retrospectively that that movie would have done much better than it did. But uh, I think audiences were pretty like done with the buddy comedy. They've been kind of done into the ground for like the last ten years, and. The movie's still, I think it's funny, but it doesn't offer much outside of what everybody had seen in all those like buddy up action movies.
0: Yeah, that's true. So in this interim, after these two movies and before The Wedding Singer, Drew Barrymore kind of comes out of nowhere, approaches Adam Sandler with the idea that they should work together. Sandler is kind of somewhat surprised that Drew Barrymore is approaching him about this. So they meet up for coffee and Barrymore and Sandler have talked about this experience as one of the worst looking blind dates that two people could have. Like she shows up in platforms and a leopard coat, totally mid nineties, Drew Barrymore style. And Sandler is in his, you know, classic baggy cargo shorts, just looking like he, you know, rolled out of bed. And you also have to... Think about the time period in which these two are meeting. So Sandler is looked at in a particular way as far as his comedy style. Some people think of him as a juvenile jokester. People aren't really seeing the depth that Sandler has the capability of showing. And Drew Barrymore in the mid-90s, some of you might remember her um, being looked at as somewhat problematic. She was kind of blacklisted in some movies. She definitely did a lot of movies during this time. But because of her previous well-known drug issues, alcoholism, and known for having wild behavior, she wasn't something that people wanted to take a lot of gamble with. So keep that in mind, where these two people are coming from. They certainly both have their own specific audiences, which are not overlapping whatsoever. So the idea of them coming together could seem out of the blue. So after this meeting, evidently they totally clicked and... Both pretty much felt like they were cinematic soulmates, is what Barrymore described it as. Maybe I wouldn't necessarily see that, but it would only be six months later before the concept for The Wedding Singer would uh, start rolling.
1: And Drew Barrymore really uh, has had so many reimaginings of her career. I mean, she's just been in the public eye since she was like four years old, was looking to start something you know knew what she was doing with scream chose to do a smaller role that was a surprise success and so this was like a really good move on both parts to like merge and and try something different with the wedding singer you know we talked about this in the beginning um, the wedding singer really is like the beginning of the evolution of a different kind of Sandler, seeing a different side, a softer side, one that uh, can be a leading man, one that can have chemistry. Because from here, from this point on, you know, and we'll talk about this later, you know, we do see so many movies that are romantic comedies. I mean, I, I think that there are, it, there's an audience that, you know, you associate Adam Sandler with romantic comedies. He's done like, you know, eight or nine of these um, with. Some of the top, you know, leading actresses of the 90s and and on.
0: And I know I just said that it would be somewhat surprising to see these two meeting up just considering where they were in their careers. But after learning more about these guys, they're both such sincere and sensitive people that it, it makes sense that they would come together for a project like The Wedding Singer and end up doing two more romantic comedies together.
1: And before we started down this path on Wedding Singer, it'd probably been a good decade since I'd watched the movie. And my first uh, rewatch, the biggest thing I noticed right, right away is the chemistry between Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler. And I do remember that being a big thing when the movie came out. Um, you know, it was a big success, but that was the big takeaway that everybody had was like their on-screen chemistry is so great. And it really is. I mean, I think that's one of the things that makes the movie believable and like keeps you locked into to um, following along with these characters. The other big thing I think with this movie is, again, Adam Sandler changing a little bit. You know, he's he's not as gruff. He's not using the weird voices that he did. And like Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore. He does use the shouting, but I think more to uh, a little more comedic effect and not as often. He does change his voice, but in a way of this soft-spoken, gentle way that he speaks. Mm-hmm. Um, there are several scenes, specifically one early on where he's been defeated and his you know girlfriend has decided to not marry him. And one of the first scenes where we see this side of Sandler where he's like, "Is everybody left? Is everybody gone? And he feels... Um, this bit of shame and that, you know, he's lost control and realizing it. But I think that there's like a depth to his performance here that we hadn't seen before. And I think a sincerity, a comedic actor who's like, This isn't, it isn't all about the jokes in this movie. It is about the story and is about the relationship between these two characters. And it's the first time we see a female in one of Adam Sandler's movies who's not just a sex object that his character is not lusting after or being um, disrespectful to. It's a female that he develops a friendship with first before a, a love story even begins to evolve.
0: Which is one of the greatest things and smartest things about this film and with that being said, there's also no sex scene in this romantic comedy. They kiss three times, and one of those kisses is a kiss that transitions into the third kiss in the, in the same scene. So Tim Herlihy sets out to begin the script for The Wedding Singer. And he and Adam Sandler had kind of had this idea of some type of a wedding singer character that they had wanted to use on SNL, but it had never come to fruition.
1: Yeah, I could totally see the wedding singer being like a re- reoccurring character on SNL. Um, I do, I do think it's great that Adam Sandler. Never took any of his characters that he made famous on SNL into the movie realm because this was a time where that was the thing to do. The 90s were like, if you had a hit bit on SNL, it was like, let's make it a feature film. And and though I think he kind of maybe tweaked it a little bit with the Cajun Man, Waterboy, he never really went that route. And I always thought that was a great thing of like early in your career, like I'm done with SNL. Here I'm moving on
0: to like my own original movies. It's funny that SNL. The higher-ups never did that with one of his characters because, I mean, It's Pat exists. I don't even understand how that can exist and not Opperman, you know? Yeah,
1: Stewart Stuart saves his family.
0: Yeah, Stewart saves his family, which, you know what? I'm not bagging on either one of those movies. Oh, I'm not actually. either. I'm just
1: saying that Sandler had much more popular
0: characters than It's Pat or uh, Stewart. Side note, I rewatched It's Pat just listeners out there, give it a rewatch. You It might hit a little differently now, and not a negative way. Now, with Hurley he's starting out on this script, he and Sandler both know from Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore that those films lacked a female voice, like a true female voice. Really, in those movies, women were just, you know, boobs, and that was it. And not that they couldn't speak for women or couldn't write for women, but a pretty well-known script doctor who'd worked on numerous movies. Ms. Carrie Fisher was brought in as an uncredited script doctor on this, giving the wedding singer as much of a female voice as it does and really bringing out the character of Julia. Judd Abateau, who is a longtime friend of Adam Sandler as well, and former roommate, uh, is also an uncredited writer on this film. So with the script for The Wedding Singer in very capable hands, Sandler calls upon another college buddy from NYU, director Frank Carisi, and Sandler had been in some of his student films from way back when. And what he brought to this movie uh, was somewhat unexpectedly personal, too. He had gone through a breakup somewhat recently, but not recent enough to be the Robbie Hart that we see, you know, completely devastated in The Wedding Singer. But what he brought was the ability to... Um, show us the heartache and humor and balance that really well. So kind of help set the tone along with the script. And when you have someone behind the camera um, who's been through that feeling of not wanting to leave the bed because you're just that depressed over a breakup, someone like that who's just fresh off of this does have the ability to capture that on screen. And I think that the heartache in The Wedding Singer completely comes through. This is a movie that is pro-love and pro-marriage, but it also shows the circumstances which can pull people apart, which can cause heartache. It's also showing the vulnerable side that men can have. And we don't See that too often in romantic comedies. Sometimes that's used as the butt of a joke. But when you have um, a script that has a lot of heartfelt elements behind it, I mean, the entire script is very sweet. But to have someone behind the camera who understands the vulnerability that a guy who's just recently gotten his heart ripped out can go through and then is forced in his profession to be around people in love. I mean, this is a tormenting experience. So it it is super helpful to have uh, everybody kind of on the same level um, in trying to communicate the the feelings behind the story.
1: And I think Sandler really reaches for in this movie what he goes back to in so many movies of uh, finding humor and in, in the pain of like heartache or disappointment or failing at something, whether it be failing as a father or as a student or as a human being in general, that uh, when you're wallowing, there can be humor, you know, you find the comedy in that. And um, I think that's what makes this movie relatable too, because, you know, we can all commiserate, but at the same time say, you know, sometimes you just got to look at the humor in your pain because otherwise, you know, you can just go over the edge.
0: And I think that that is perfectly articulated in the scene where Robbie is singing a song that he's just written to Julia who asks to see this. But Robbie is, you know, has his heart ripped out and it's the song that's known as Somebody Kill Me. And it's, you know, very like controlled and quiet and then turns into like this screaming mess that's actually a really great song. And this is how you feel going through a breakup sometimes, or at least I have. When I watch this scene, as much as it is funny to watch Robbie have this breakdown, I'm also, my heart is hurting because I'm familiar with that feeling. And it's a familiar feeling that anyone who's been broken up with uh, has gone through. But balancing that humor and heartache, man, this is the best scene in the movie to show that.
1: And his lyrics just being so literal. There's like no like covering up anything with like innuendo or or metaphors. Yeah. And also this, you know, this is something that we failed to mention before. I mean, on top of you know being a comedian, stand up, producer, actor, writer, uh, Sandler, you know, kind of got famous as a songwriter. You know, he did songs on SNL. He had the Hanukkah song. He had Lunch Lady Land. And these songs that he released on his comedy albums, they they became pretty big songs. He's a Accomplished guitar player and has a knack for writing catchy songs that do have humor in them, um, even though they can be ridiculous. And, you know, has two songs in this movie that I think are really catchy. And uh, one of which is, you know, really endearing and does have, uh, again, he's very literal with his lyrics, but I think that there's enough heart and emotion there that uh, it doesn't come off like totally cheesy. And, you know, you can accept it for what it is for for face value.
0: That song, the second one, uh, Grew Old With You, that's at, at the end of the movie. I saw a clip of Sandler and Barrymore and Jimmy Fallon, and they were like making up this song that probably they weren't making up at the time, but kind of going back and forth. And Sandler ends it. With what does look improvised is the just the chorus to that singing it to Drew Barrymore, and she reacts the exact way that she did in the movie. And, like, is I mean, that song gets you, it really hits you. And also, did you hear Justin that with both of those songs, Drew didn't know what the songs would sound like or what the lyrics would be? So, when we see her on screen, that's her legitimate reaction. And I loved learning that because it does, I mean, Drew Barrymore is a great actor. But knowing that makes it so much more meaningful.
1: It totally does give for a more genuine reaction. And Sandler uh, did all his own singing in the movie. And there is like quite a bit of singing. I mean, the cover songs they do, I mean, they play like... like a full song. I mean, over the scene, like he sings a lot and does have like a respectable voice. I mean, I know like he gets goofy with his voice in certain songs or whatever, but when they're just doing the straight up covers, he's good enough to buy the fact that he does this professionally, that he is a professional wedding singer. And speaking of music, this is a soundtrack that's like packed with eighties hits. A Um, double album. Yeah, this is a soundtrack. It became a double album. I I had forgotten how many songs are actually in this movie. And some of them, too, I like that they're not like winking at you like, hey, it's the 80s. Yeah, Um, I wouldn't say deep cuts, but they put a lot of songs in there. And they're not like they don't crank up the music all the time. It's like they're layered throughout the movie.
0: And speaking of 80s, Billy Idol, who makes a cameo in the final act of this film, man, that guy got a uh, resurgence in popularity and some new fans because of his little bit on the plane uh, with Robbie singing to Julia and and winning her over with his uh, sweet song that we just brought up.
1: And this was a continuation, too, of Sandler using real life celebrities in his movies, like playing themselves, like Bob Barker and Happy Gilmore. Um, You know, he's done that in other movies like Vanilla Ice and That's My Boy. And they're never just like a a little cameo. They serve some sort of like specific purpose and like there's a reason for them to be there. It doesn't seem like um, just like, hey, I know this guy. I'm going to throw him in my movie.
0: And he certainly doesn't stop with just kind of uh, cameos of random celebrities thrown in he brings in friends from the past one of my favorite scenes is John Lovitz's mini I don't even think he's in the credits but as the rival wedding singer in town that thanks Robbie for having a meltdown because now his business is really picking up but man his scene the he's losing his mind and I'm reaping all the benefits that and then the slow curtain thing—it's a—it's a joke inside of a joke. Like the—the the curtain doesn't need to happen, but man, is that a brilliant part!
1: And to kind of go through the cast here of the wedding singer, um, another person that Sandler had worked with already several times, uh, on Airheads and Billy Madison, uh, Steve Buscemi, who has my personal favorite scenes in this movie, is uh, the uh, drunk brother of the groom. He kind of comes back arbitrarily later on in the movie. But uh, his, all his scenes where he's just sort of like giving the drunk brother just terrible speech, there's like a good like five minutes that I think is like comedy gold. And what I like about Sandler movies is, is he lets people have these scenes. It's not always all about him and all about Sandler's jokes. Um, he lets things play out in all of his movies and gives people uh, bit parts. And 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 don't get me wrong, I think I think Sandler is like a big part of a lot of the comedy in a lot of his movies, but I think sometimes these little bit parts are just as funny as anything that he's doing on screen.
0: Another very memorable person from this movie who came back in another Barrymore and Sandler movie blended, um, is Alexis Arquette, who is the basically Boy George in Boy George and maybe Sandler's best bandmate in this. Certainly the one that gets the most screen time. I love Alexis Arquette in this. I don't think that there are some cheap jokes like we're, we're laughing at her in this movie. It's just she provides a lot of humor for this film and uh, yeah very memorable every time she's on screen. <laughs> Especially not even just playing in the band like when Robbie gets left at the altar and has his freak out that we just hear off screen and (laughs) alexis's immediate meltdown more than anyone else in the audience is a classic moment
1: and uh ellen albertini dow who uh is best known as the rapping granny but also the little lady who adam sandler um gives piano lessons and uh only accepts a meatballs as payment uh i think also uh this kicked off a long starting with billy madison with the uh the old lady who uh, does the uh, Miles Davis line and, and uh, Adam Sandler's grandma and Happy Gilmore, but this long history of using old people in movies.
0: So many one-liners in this movie. Another great one um, that is targeted towards the ex-fiancee, Linda, played by Angela Featherstone, with uh, Adam Sandler going, information that would have been helpful yesterday. Many great scenes with her, but she is... Um, the villain, not the only villain in this movie, probably the bigger villain, that being Glenn. Oh, that Glenn, that dirtbag, played by Matthew Glave.
1: Yeah, he does this uh, role so perfectly. I think this was originally intended for Christopher McDonald, who was uh, Shooter McGavin and Happy Gilmore, but for whatever reason, scheduling or something, he couldn't do the part, but uh, a perfect alternative. I, I think they really did a good job of embodying that 80s greed and like scumbaggery uh, so well. And then also, too, you get the good uh, joke of uh, him, his name being Glenn Guglia, and that uh, <laughs> if they get married, her name will be Julia Guglia.
0: Why is that funny? I don't know. Of course, with a great villain in a movie, you also have to have a great best friend. And in this, it's Sammy, played by Alan Covert, who, like I said, has been around since Sandler's early days and appears in, I would say, pretty much all of his movies. There's not one, even if he's on screen for five seconds. I love Alan Covert in so many things. He doesn't have very many starring roles, but Grandma's Boy is a wonderful movie. I can't even say enough how much I love that movie
1: yeah, and it seemed like uh, Alan Covert's roles like shrank a little bit as Sandler got bigger and when Sandler did larger movies with more ensemble cast with like bigger name actors, um but if you look and see Alan Covert is usually listed as like a producer or executive producer on just about every single one of these Sandler movies. So again, it's Sandler like keeping his friends in business, keeping them working, whether it be on the screen or behind the scenes.
0: I'm pretty sure along with Tim Herlihy and a few other recurring names that he's involved with. Happy Madison Productions, which uh, started in 99. And some might wonder, with Sandler having so many longtime male friends involved with this, that this could turn into a little bit of a boys club. And even Drew Barrymore and co-star Christine Taylor at the beginning were saying things like, oh man, this is going to be Phi Beta Sandler, this boys fraternity. But there wasn't any type of, you know, weirdness or differentiation between longtime friends and new cast members. And Christine Taylor with Drew Barrymore, they shared a ton of scenes with just them on screen. And we hadn't really seen this before with Sandler movies where he wasn't on screen 100% of the time. It was kind of a gamble to do that with a movie so early on in in Sandler's movie career, but early test screenings showed that audiences were on board with it. Now, if you would have tried that with Billy Madison or Happy Gilmore, it wouldn't have worked. But the strength of the characters, actors, and the script, all of that involved we didn't need Sandler on screen at all times.
1: So in a good marketing strategy, they released The Wedding Singer the day before Valentine's Day. It got uh, fairly decent reviews for Adam Sandler movie. It also was the first movie that Adam Sandler made that grossed over $100 million. It also revitalized Drew Barrymore's career. I also wonder if Adam Sandler was worried about this movie failing, because in the same year, him and Frank Caracci also released The Waterboy, which was definitely much more in the same vein as Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore. The Waterboy actually doubled the success of The Wedding Singer. The box office receipts of both of these movies showed that fans would come to a slightly more sensitive Sandler movie, as well as remaining big fans of the comedy that he had been doing thus far. So it's at this point in Adam Sandler's career where he's at a crossroads. Does he stick with more sensitive type movies? Does he go in different directions? Does he just keep doing straightforward comedies? We'll get into that in a bit. We're going to take a short break. Uh, I've got some clips queued up, one from Big Daddy, Punch Drunk Love, and 50 First Dates. We'll listen to those, and then we'll be back.
2: Hey, how you doing there, boy? You sleepwalking? Huh? Why don't you go back sleepy? Sleepy. Keep napping. What's this?
1: Kangaroo song.
2: All right, great. That's terrific. And we're going to watch this after the game, okay? But after my nap, I always watch the kangaroo song. It's overtime right now, and there's a penalty shot about to take place. This happens like once every ten years. Kangaroo song. Kangaroo song. Kangaroo Kangaroo song. Kangaroo Kangaroo song! All right! Fuck you. No. You're a pervert. You think you can be a pervert and not pay for it? Don't you say that to me.
1: You call the phone, son. Shut up. I didn't do
2: anything. I'm a nice man. I mind my own business. So you tell me that's that before I beat the hell from you. So much strength in me, you have no idea. I have a love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. I would say that's that, Mattress Man. You came all the way from L.A. to tell me this. Yes, I did.
1: Tell the cops? No.
2: All right. Alright, I just wrote this so go easy on me. Hukila <laughs> was the place where I first saw you miss. We liked each other right away. But you didn't remember me the very next day. <laughs> used to trick you into pulling your car over so we could chat, but my favorite time was when you beat the shit out of Ulu with a bat, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we
2: drove up to see Dr. Keats, and found out why Doug always has to change his sheets, Forget Lucy, cracked her head like Gary Busey, but I still love her so let her go even if while I'm singing this song she's wishing I had Jocko the walrus and he <laughs>
1: Now, after having an extremely successful year with director Frank Coraci, with The Wedding Singer and The Waterboy, Sandler would have what is still considered one of the biggest hits of his career to close out the 90s, and that was Big Daddy. With Big Daddy, Sandler teamed with many friends that he had previously worked with in the 90s. Tim Hurley, he again co-writes. He tapped Dennis Dugan, who home Happy Gilmore, to direct, and several actors who show up in bit parts that had been in his previous films, including Rob Schneider, Steve Buscemi, and Alan Covert. And while Big Daddy contained some of the slapstick and silly humor that we saw in Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore, it also contained some of the heart and softness that we saw in The Wedding Singer. The movie was also rated PG-13 and probably at that point the closest thing to a family-friendly movie that Sandler had done. Starting in 2000 and onward, Sandler would have the most interesting and prolific part of his career. In the last 20 years, he starred or had bit parts in over three dozen movies. Now, it would take us hours to go through every single movie in Sandler's filmography, but I'm going to try to streamline things the best I can. During this stretch of his career, it seemed like the films that he chose fell into three different categories. At least it seems that way to us. The first being the majority of the movies that he has done, and those are working with directors that he's friends with, that he trusts, and also movies that he had generally a hand in either co-writing or co-producing. Those directors being Frank Caracci, who we mentioned before, who other than Wedding Singer and Waterboy also worked with him on Click and Blended. Director Stephen Brill, who started working with Sandler in 2000's Little Nicky, would go on to do Mr. Deeds, The Do-Over, Sandy Wexler, as well as Hubie Halloween. And the director that he worked with the most in his career was friend Dennis Dugan, who started with Happy Gilmore. And Big Daddy, he would go on to do many, many more films in Sandler's career. Chuck and Larry, Don't Mess with the Zohan, Grown Ups, Grown Ups 2, Jack and Jill, and Just Go With It. And most of these movies, again, Sandler had a big hand in creating the characters, co-writing the scripts. I find these to be the most zany of his movies. I think the ones that we're most used to seeing as far as like a straight up Sandler movie where he's the main character and the comedy can usually go between total weirdness and total lowbrow silliness. And we'll touch on a few of these a little bit more later on, but it seems like this category of Sandler is where he's having the most fun. He seems to be taking the least amount of risk because it's all about just the movies being funny, what's funny to him and what's funny to his friends. The majority of these movies were straight up comedies, critically panned, but box office hits. Now, another category of movies that Sandler did is something I think we've seen with other comedic actors like Eddie Murphy, Robin Williams, and Jim Carrey, especially once they had kids, and that's doing family-friendly movies. Now, he didn't dive in as deep with the family movies as some of the other comedians I mentioned. He did do a handful of films, starting with 2002's animated holiday film, Eight Crazy Nights. He co-wrote, co-produced, and also did the majority of the songs in the movie, including a new rendition of his very popular The Hanukkah Song. He would also star in 2008's live-action fantasy kids film, Bedtime Stories, co-starring Carrie Russell and Courtney Cox. From 2008 onward, he would go on to co-write, produce, and voice the main character of the very lucrative animated franchise, Hotel Transylvania, about Dracula operating a resort for all his monster friends. From what I understand, there's a part four on the way this year. I'll admit that although I'm a gigantic Adam Sandler fan, I'm not the biggest fan of animated movies or kids' movies, and I haven't seen any of these movies that have mentioned any of these animated movies or the live-action kids' movie. From what I've looked up, they seem to have gotten pretty good reviews and kids seem to like them. Um, Maybe someday I'll get around to watching those. The final category here I like to refer to is Sandler Works with Acclaimed Directors or Sandler Gets Serious. There's really only a handful of these films, and most of them I wouldn't consider comedies outside of maybe Pixels, directed by Chris Columbus. But he did uh, The Meyerowitz Stories with Noah Baumbach, uh, The Cobbler with Tim McCarthy, Spanglish with James L. Brooks, and recently Uncut Gems by the Softy Brothers. I read that for the movie Inglorious Bastards, the role of Donnie Donowitz, uh, portrayed by Eli Roth, was originally written for Adam Sandler, specifically by Tarantino. Now hearing something like that in 2009 when Glorious Bastards came out doesn't really seem all that crazy, but in the mid to late 90s, if you heard that one of the most acclaimed directors in Hollywood was writing roles specifically for Adam Sandler, it would sound pretty insane. But that all changed in the early 2000s when Paul Thomas Anderson cast Adam Sandler in his fourth film, Punch Drunk Love. Prior to casting, Anderson had teased about it in some interviews, leaving some film journalists scratching their head as to why he would want to work with Adam Sandler after working with some of the best new actors in Hollywood, including Philip Seymour Hoffman and Julianne Moore, and coming off huge critical hits like Boogie Nights and Magnolia. In Punch Drunk Love, Sandler plays Barry Egan, a very lonely man who, though he owns his own business, has zero self-confidence, and he's been totally bullied in a submission by seven overbearing sisters, but soon tries to come out of his show with multiple internal and external conflicts. It's a very beautiful, heartbreaking, and slowly paced film. And Paul Thomas Anderson, who seems to get the best out of just about every actor he works with in his career, Anderson was able to harness all of Sandler's idiosyncrasies that he had done in many of his other films. His ability to go from extremely quiet to explosively angry, his bashfulness, his penchant for the underdog, but strip away all of the silliness and leave his performance totally bold and genuine. It was a side of Sandler that nobody had seen before, and it was also the movie that started changing some critics' minds and thinking, hey, this guy can actually act. And that was a running theme with all these movies I mentioned in this category. Critics seemed to respond to them, but the other thing that they also all had in common was they didn't do very well at the box office. Audiences wanted to see Sandler being silly, and I can totally understand that. I think I feel the same way, but I do love to see him get serious. Probably his most serious and somber role out of all these types of movies was Mike Binder's Reign Over Me, where Sandler plays a man who is shell-shocked and completely can't accept the fact that his family has died in 9-11. It's a very, very heavy film, though it's very sobering. It's very heartfelt. And again, Sandler putting in a performance that uh, you just didn't think he was capable of. After watching all of these movies, I can understand why these directors want Sandler. He has the ability to really change himself. He can look very menacing and very intimidating and big in certain movies. He can also shrink himself down and seem very meek. He also has the look and ability to play the handsome heroic lead or the dorky neighbor next door meticulously cutting his lawn. And I'm not really a hater on Sandler doing a lot of his goofy voices that he's done through all of his movies. Some of them I do find kind of grating. Little Nicky being probably the biggest of them all. But in a lot of these serious movies, he does have this voice that's much more soft-spoken and it's so genuine-sounding. You just kind of want to give his character a hug in the movie Rain Over Me. And after watching it twice over the last few weeks, I really think it might be one of his best performances.
0: I was really surprised by that film. I hadn't seen it before. And, man, it was... Not what I was expecting. I read like briefly what the description was and I immediately stopped reading it. I'm like, okay, this is going to be heavy, but is there going to be some other angle to it that's going to be him being quirky in some weird way, like in Punch Drunk Love? Man, this one is so straightforward and the man can really show the deep pain that someone's going through. And it was one of the ones that really solidified for me. Um, him being such a great well-rounded actor
1: in a lesser-known movie that i watched the other night that i hadn't really heard of to be honest was uh tom mccarthy's the cobbler and tom mccarthy had like a big oscar hit with spotlight but he did this very strange almost like depressing fantasy type movie with sandler definitely worth seeing i think it's one of the more um, unusual movies that Adam Sandler has done, if you can believe that. Most recently, the Softy Brothers, who came out with a hit Uncut Gems, they wrote this movie specifically for Sandler, like tracked him down. They were up and coming directors, had a few critically acclaimed movies on the festival circuit. And this was the movie that everybody thought Adam Sandler is is geared to be nominated for an Oscar. He's downright almost unrecognizable in the movie. He plays a very anxious New York City jewel dealer who is in way over his head in debts. In some ways, it's one of the more scumbaggy roles he's ever played. But somehow Sandler, again, manages to make us feel sympathy for his character toward the end. I think it was this movie, too, that he got the biggest critical acclaim in. Critics and fans, everybody was on his side. They really wanted him to get nominated for a movie. I think he even made a joke uh, in the press saying that if he wasn't nominated, he was going to, after this, make one of the worst movies ever made. And unfortunately, he did not get the nomination. And I think it's kind of criminal that the Academy passed on that role.
0: I think as far as him not being nominated for Uncut Gems was... I, I can't help but think that that has something to do with comedic actors always getting kind of the short end of the stick once they do a serious role. I mean, bill it's happened to Bill Murray. Um, it's happened to plenty of comedic actors who have done that and done a fantastic job. And there is absolutely zero reason he shouldn't have been recognized for Uncut Gems. That was... That movie is still with me. I didn't actually go back and revisit it for this episode just because of how much it made my heart race. I really like that movie. Damn, is it anxiety provoking?
1: What's unique about Adam Sandler is like he does this movie, like Uncut Gems, and within the same year and a half, does like Q.B. Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> Him saying, like, No, I, I'm never going to shed this ridiculous shit that I've been doing since 1995. Yeah. You know, I still have that always. In me to like go over the edge with comedy but i'm not afraid to you know if a director really wants to work with me and has this great script and they can direct me in a way they see hey i think you're gonna fit for this role he's willing to go for it you know and and take the time to work on that movie and the guy's like a maniac it's insane how many movies he does like back to back i mean several years he's had you know a serious movie and then a comedy and then like 10 years of working on these animation movies like the, the Transylvania movies. Again, I haven't seen any of them, but good Lord, I read that they made like a combined $1 billion. He just always seems to strike gold with whatever project he's working on.
0: And I've got to hand it to the guy that there are people like Jim Carrey or Bill Murray again. You know, they do go back and forth, but I can't think of someone who's like Adam Sandler that has the extreme back and forth that he does and involvement And all of these movies, though, many of them share a lot of the same themes or, you know, feelings behind them, whether it's an underdog story or dealing with a family dynamic. They all consistently have this genuine, heartfelt backbone to them, and they could be a slapstick comedy, um, but underneath that... There is this theme of friendship is really what the movie's about, or it could be something incredibly serious that has the same feeling behind it. Somehow he continues to go for these stories that all deal with kind of the same aspects, but they are wildly original stories.
1: And I think that's more present in the movies that... uh sandler did with steven brill and dennis dugan who i mentioned he worked with the most and though the plots to a lot of these movies and the stories are simple i agree with you they are very unique whether it be little nicky that steven brill directed where sandler plays the son of the devil or dennis dugan's you don't mess with a zohan where sandler plays an israeli special forces soldier who fakes his death so he can uh start a new life in new york city as a hairstylist Or also uh, Jack and Jill, which was also directed by Dugan, where Sandler does the Eddie Murphy thing where he plays uh, two separate characters who are twin brother and sister. Even though I think it has some pretty funny stuff, some people say it's one of the worst films ever made and the worst in Sandler's career.
0: I don't know. I thought it was funny. Sure, there are things that are completely ridiculous and over the top, but there were many times I laughed out loud.
1: But even though people hated it, it still, um, I think, was made something like $145 million at the box office. Really, uh, when I was looking at his filmography, he's really only had like two or three bombs, uh, one being Stephen Brill's, uh, the movie I mentioned earlier, Little Nikki. It's out there. It's out there. You know, <laughs> I'll give it credit for really taking the challenge. Man. Yeah, I- I'll give it credit for that. But it is it is uh, probably one of Sandler's more grating characters. And a director I haven't mentioned yet, he also worked with comedy director Peter Siegel uh, three times in a row, back to back. He did Anger Management with Jack Nicholson. Uh, Fifty First Dates, Working Again with Drew Barrymore, and The Longest Yard, which uh, I watched um, a couple nights ago in sort of a different kind of Sandler movie because it's kind of a straight-up sports movie. It's a remake of The Longest Yard with uh, Burt Reynolds, and Burt Reynolds has a little bit part in it as well. Um, really good movie. I hadn't seen it in a while, and I, I think it's uh, definitely worth watching if you're a fan of football movies, sports movies, and prison movies.
0: I find it fascinating that the guy is able to take universal themes and spin them into unique stories that are going to find an audience, no matter um, who it is, and somehow going to do well. Again, very few people have yeah. like had the
1: amount of like hit movies, you know, where the box office numbers are there. You can blame so many success on forced cultural phenomenon, you know, but.
0: After 30 years, After 30
1: years, yeah. I mean, after 10 years, you know, like people that are still finding Sandler funny, they're still plopping down money. And again, comedy's objective. Sure, some of these ideas are recycled through some of Sandler's movies. You know, a lot of times he plays the underdog, but I think you make a good point. You know, there's generally some sort of unique storyline. There's some sort of heartfelt moment that I think always works, you know, and it doesn't feel, to me, too overused. And again, this is a guy who sat down
0: and watched, like, you know, 20-something Sandler movies in a row. (laughs) Adam Sandler has never cared about what critics thought of him. From the point when he was a kid to being an adult, he's only wanted to do good work and, you know, through most of his movies, make people laugh. And I think he's done an amazing job of that. Even something like, what was one of the last ones I watched was a Murder Mystery, one of the Netflix films with Jennifer Aniston. That thing, it was funny how I felt like I was watching a dinner theater being performed, but it was so self-referential that it had elements of, you know, scream to like harken back to, oh, I was watching this Dateline episode, you know, just all of these things that take familiar things of everyday life and putting it into a film, but making it a wildly original story that I hadn't ever seen before.
1: And with Sandler too, one thing that I've noticed, like, when we're trying to find research on this, he does so few interviews um, you don't really catch him talking too much about uh, his process or, or about his movies. And I was kind of wondering what the deal with that is. You know, and he does seem like a private person, um, and, you know, and always working with his friends. It's like he doesn't have anything to prove to anybody. But I did find some interviews early on in his career, like, you know, mid and late 90s. In all these interviews, the journalists don't seem to take him very seriously. They seem to only ask him about, "Hey, critics think you're an idiot, you know? Yeah. <laughs> people think that your movies are stupid and all that." And he's just like, "You know, I mean, I, I like him. I've been spending a lot of time and part of my life working on these movies. You know, me and my friends think they're funny. Audiences think they're funny, and so it just seems that with critics and in press." They just want to pigeonhole him and they don't want to accept him as anything else. And I think that that's gotten better over the years, but I can see why Sandler's just like, yeah, I don't care about what critics say. I know that they hate most of my stuff and that doesn't bother me because, you know, people have shown their love. You know, I'm, I'm making money. I'm working with my friends. We just pick a place where we want to go on vacation and then we shoot a movie there. He seems to have a pretty uh, good
0: life. Yeah, that's a pretty fun way to think about shooting a movie. Like, let's pick a place and let's just take all of our families there and just be the easiest thing to do and be with people that you're very comfortable with. You know, along with critics um, slamming his movies, I think it's all part of the same animal with people saying that they're not Adam Sandler fans when they've only seen Happy Gilmore and Billy Madison, that you don't give him enough credit because you think that that's all that he is. And I don't know. I, I, I think that it's just a lot of short-sightedness and not really willing to look deeper into his movies.
1: Now, in the last few years, we've definitely seen a change in what's going to theaters and what's going to streaming services. Mostly been affected because of the pandemic. But really, in the last 10 years, we've seen huge streaming giants like Hulu and Netflix and Amazon produced their own movies, put out their own movies. And Netflix signed a huge multi-picture deal with Adam Sandler in 2014 for some ungodly amount of money. And that started with The Ridiculous Six, which really uh, fit with its name. Kind of just a outrageous take on westerns that one in particular hasn't been my favorite of the ones that he's released for netflix he followed that up in 2016 with the do-over with his good buddy david spade then the next year put out sandy wexler and the following year in 2018 the week of with his other really good friend chris rock and then the movie you brought up earlier murder mystery with jennifer Aniston, which i think i've definitely liked the best out of all his netflix movies so far
0: like, Sandy Wexler wasn't my favorite out of all of his movies, but yet I had to stop it in the middle of it to go to work or something, and I couldn't help thinking about it. And as soon as I got home, I'm like, I got to know what happens. The, like, the story was interesting enough for me to go, what's going to happen to this guy?
1: Yeah. And most recently uh, for Netflix, Chibi Halloween, it was like the sixth movie he's done for Netflix. And that one, to me, it's like, I'm going to do a Halloween-themed movie and do all this like... Halloweeny type stuff and make it funny and cute. I think, you know, he was successful with that. Um, he most recently signed an, another four picture deal with Netflix. I don't know how they track stuff on Netflix, you know, uh, how many streams or how many people are watching it, but apparently he's one of the most watched people on Netflix. So that's why they keep doing these deals with them. I'm happy to live in the world where I know that once a year there's going to be a new Adam Sandler movie that I can click (laughs) on and watch. And I think that's a good place for him to live. You know, he did a smart move where it's like he can still get big budgets to make these comedies, um, you know, still get all his friends together and still have a wide range of audiences to do his comedy in front of and i love adam sandler i'm glad that we're gonna at least know that we have four more movies uh, around the bend with uh, sandler and i'm curious to see what he does with these i'm also curious about uh, other directors that who have wanted to work with sandler who haven't got the opportunity i, I would love to see him work with tarantino at some point that'd be awesome
0: no oh, i'm sure he would kill in that after watching all of these movies um I would think that I'd be sick of watching Adam Sandler movies. I'm totally not. And probably after this tomorrow, um, I'm going to probably watch the ones that I didn't get to catch up on.
1: Well, I hope you listeners aren't sick of hearing about Adam Sandler because (laughs) we still have a little bit more to talk about in regards to the man with our picks of the week. Lindsay, your pick was Funny People. What can you tell me about that?
0: Well, the most unassuming aspect of Funny People is that this is not the comedy you're expecting This one knocks you around a little. Adam Sandler continues to expand his range of emotional depth within comedic roles, and in 2009, coming off of the movie Rain Over Me, this movie was perfectly situated in his career. Plus, this is a home run of a movie for a longtime friend and former roommate, writer, director, and producer of Funny People, Judd Apatow. At its heart, this film is about stand-up comedy, and the king of this comedy world, the famous, raunchy stand-up comic who also happens to make family films, is George Simmons, played by Sandler. I have to pinch myself a couple times to remember that this is not a true story about Sandler or Apatow's real lives. When a writer tells a true story that's incredibly personal, there are always these small details which make it feel autobiographical. And when that person is also the director, chances are, this story is going to cut to the core. George Simmons has built himself into a megastar from the ground up, but he's angry, devoid of human connection, and in fact recoils from it. So when George gets the news that he has a rare form of leukemia, the comedian's darkness begins to shine through. At the same time, he starts realizing, crap, I need to do more. I haven't been an awesome guy, and what can I do differently? George isn't a saint. He doesn't turn into some soulful man overnight, or really throughout the duration of the film. He's a jerk, but recognizes he's made a lot of mistakes. The other half of this film is Ira Wright, played by the ever-lovable Seth Rogen. He's the up-and-coming comedian, talented enough, still telling fart jokes, but slowly finding his confidence. In a fledgling moment, Ira makes an impression on George by making fun of him in the middle of his stand-up routine, which ignites George to get back on the comedy circuit and also hire Ira to be his joke writer and personal assistant. There's a heavy theme of friendship throughout Funny People. George knows Ira is lucky to work for him, but that doesn't mean he's gonna be kind or grateful, but maybe a few steps above treating him like total dirt. And though he treats Ira like an underling, George also uses him to confess his sickness instead of going public with it. This chip in George's well-weathered yet immature armor means that there might be a way to break through to this guy. The story branches off into many other storylines. Not that it's unfocused, but there are a lot of characters within the separate lives of Ira and George, and ultimately they all come together. For George, the one-that-got-away storyline featuring Laura, his ex, played by Leslie Mann, hits me just as hard as the sickness angle of the movie. I'm always a fan of Leslie Mann, and her role in this movie is eerily accurate at times. Her love for George can never be fully overshadowed, even though she tries. Her nonverbal display of a slow breakdown as she questions whether to leave her husband for George really feels spot on, and made me rewind it a couple times because I thought she did such an impressive job. Sickness, lost love, and the desire to correct mistakes of our past are all universal but not unexplored territory. There are unexpected angles to the love and leukemia aspects of the movie, which I'm not going to spoil, but still, this story remains complicated. Apatow isn't going for crocodile tears, but he knows how to evoke real emotions from actors, and when you have a close-knit group of real comics and longtime friends, you're going to get honest performances. The creative decision to use some home movies of Sandler's early days palling around with up-and-coming and and now-famous comedians like Ben Stiller and Janine Garofalo, this further solidifies that sense of questioning reality. Like, is this really about Sandler? It's not, but it sure feels like it. Apatow even does a little bit of the same with real-life wife Leslie Mann throwing in bits from her early Hollywood beginnings. Funny People is unexpectedly touching without being sentimental. So many personalities went into mirroring this very real world set around the fictional George Simmons. It's a safe bet that all comedians in this movie either had or knew of mentor situations like George and Ira. Just to name check a few of the appearances and supporting roles in this movie, You got Jonah Hill, Aubrey Plaza, Jason Schwartzman, RZA of Wu-Tang, Norm MacDonald, Ray Romano, I mean, the list goes on. It's a Where's Waldo type of game to play when you're watching this movie. And Apatow and Man's two daughters are also in this picture, and that's a risky choice to cast your wife and your kids, but it really works out well. The mood in Funny People is dark, but never desperate or too far off the ledge. And the story isn't meant to be inspirational, but it might cause some to take a hard look at their own lives. There's an extended version of Funny People, which I was not able to check out, but I will totally seek it out because I would really like to own this movie. Justin, you've seen this before, right? I
1: have, and this movie really grew on me. The first time I saw it, I didn't really like it that much. And this was one that uh, the second time I saw it, I caught more of the drama. And it really is a good performance by Sandler and really feels the most like... um, It seems like he's playing himself, but in a dramatic way. Yeah, like You you feel like there's a lot of real things that happen in his real life that mirror the character and the situations in the movie.
0: Sometimes it's kind of hard to think, oh, wait, is this something that he cherry-picked out of his life?
1: No. But,
0: you know, you don't know.
1: And uh, Seth Rogen, sometimes I like him, sometimes he really annoys me. I think he does a really good job in this movie. And uh, this was, I think, the first start of seeing Jonah Hill starting to turn in some like really good roles. I mean, now Jonah Hill's like, Oh, you know, he's like a huge known for being working with like really big directors and getting all these great roles. But he, uh, was turning in some pretty good stuff early on here.
0: We all remember you from grandma's boy, Jonah Hill.
1: Yeah.
0: All right, Justin, your turn. What was your Adam Sandler movie?
1: My pick of the week was just go with it. Uh, this was a 2011 movie with, uh, Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston, um, and this is sort of, I think, the peak um, point in Adam Sandler's career where he was really heavily transitioning more into a romantic lead. You know, he'd already done two movies with Drew Barrymore. He did a movie with Wine Owner Ryder, which was a remake of Mr. Deeds. And this uh, movie was also another remake of the movie Cactus Flower with Walter Matthau and Goldie Hawn. I'm not sure why they didn't go with... Uh, the name Cactus Flower is the remake, because that was a pretty well-known movie, and it was a, a big success from, I think it was came out in 1969. Regardless, they changed the title. It's a similar story. Much like a lot of Adam Sandler movies, we see him younger, and he's humiliated by someone, um, in this case being his soon-to-be wife. He overhears her saying that she's only marrying him. Because uh, he's going to be a surgeon and make money, and she makes fun of how large his nose is. Then we cut to a bar, and he uh, decides he's not going to get married, but he has his wedding ring on. Um, and this woman notices that he's married, and she comes on to him. And so he gets in his head that if he tells uh, women that he's married, that they'll want to get with him, and then he, you know, sleeps with them and does away with them and so he's not a very good character much like a lot of the characters that he plays but you know he he tries to win you over in the end well this is the case he does the same thing he he grows up he becomes a very wealthy plastic surgeon and he's going to do his whole scheme where he has his wedding ring on but he actually meets this younger woman um really actually ends up liking her but then she finds out that he's married even though he's not Um, But he gets caught in his lie and he's like, no, no, we're getting divorced. And even though he's not married, he has to come up with this whole scheme to please her and let her know like, no, I'm getting a divorce. It's amicable. And so he convinces uh, Jennifer Aniston, his assistant at his office to pose as his soon to be ex-wife. And then one lie leads to another. And now he's got two kids. He has to have her kids pose as his kids to... Convince this younger woman that you know he's a stand-up guy and that he is who he says he is. And so, like a lot of Adam Sandler movies, they venture to Hawaii, this like very exotic place where all these uh, a bunch of uh, humorous anecdotes come along. And this this section of the movie is a lot of fun. This is definitely a movie that's like make or break whether you tolerate this kind of Sandler. You know, it is kind of schmaltzy. It is uh, very goofy but not as gross out as like, this isn't full on Sandler. This is sort of, again, that middle ground that we've talked about where you know, it's him, it's like a romantic comedy. And Sandler's chemistry with all these leading women is always very naturalistic and electric, especially his chemistry with Jennifer Aniston in this movie. You really, really want them to get together at the end instead of Sandler getting together with the younger woman. I think Jennifer Aniston is the best thing about this movie. I wasn't a huge Friends fan, but I did see some of it. And I've never really thought her to be as funny as she is in this movie. you know This was one that I didn't really think I was even going to like. When we were going through all these Sandler movies, this is one that I hadn't seen. So I popped it on and immediately was into it and just was cracking up at Jennifer Aniston. So I've since then gone back and watched some other movies that she did where she plays more comedy and she's fantastic. So if you don't exactly hate Adam Sandler, but you you haven't seen anything that he's done since like Happy Gilmore or if you're a fan of The Wedding Singer and 51st Dates but you didn't venture out into some of these other movies he did I highly recommend this one this is a really funny movie it's really feel good it's not very long really beautiful locations and a really bizarre role um, with Nicole Kidman and Dave Matthews uh, as a couple, I don't want if you, I don't want to spoil anything. It, the whole section at their end is worth watching the movie just for that. It's utterly bizarre and hysterical. Um, so look for that. But um, yeah, as far as Sandler movies go, I think this is it, it, in the last twenty years. I think one of the more fun, feel good, and funny movies that he's put out.
0: I've seen this one a couple times now, and I think I had seen it actually before we started doing this episode and. It had me rolling on the floor. I mean, not, okay, not literally, but it, it was really cracking me up. And I have not been able to decide, I think until like right now, if I like this or Murder Mystery, the other movie that they did together more. I don't know. I, I really love both of them, but just go with it. There's a few scenes of them in the office together in their workspace together that just crack me up. And it seems like they're just making up stuff to make each other laugh.
1: Yeah, both of these Aniston and Sandler movies were really nice surprises for me. Well, those are our picks of the week, just go with it, and funny people, here's your Murray Moment.
0: Chicks dig me, because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do,
1: it's usually something unusual. I think I
0: need a root canal.
1: I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even show.
2: Hmm, this is so instructive. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all oh. striking.
0: For those folks who love music, been in a band, or played cover sets, you can't help but feel some kinship with a wedding singer. And Billy is no slouch when it comes to being on stage playing music. I put feelers out there for anyone who's played in his high school bands like the Dutch Masters or the Slick Jazz Trio, so if you have any information about that, please get back to me because I need to know the story here. But one of his much bigger bands deserves some airtime on this podcast, and that's the foursome of Bill, cellist Jan Vogler, violinist Mira Wang, and pianist Vanessa Perez, who collaborated together to create the semi-experimental mixture of classical music and literature and a crossover art album called New Worlds. This is the ultimate classical music cover band. What initially made me settle on this Murray moment was how Bill and Jan came to know each other. Maybe it wasn't the romantic airplane scene at the end of The Wedding Singer, But their friendship did begin at an airport, which continued once they got on the plane leaving Berlin and headed to New Jersey. Perfect strangers who'd soon become bandmates. I see this guy with a funny-looking suitcase and think, I need to help him out, Bill said of seeing Jan with his cello case. So I say, are you going to be able to fit that thing in the overhead compartments? Jan looked at Bill and dryly said, it has its own seat. They started talking, joking around a bit, and slowly figuring each other out. Jan even asked Bill if any of his movies were available in flight. Of course, the conversation's going to eventually turn to music, and Jan noticed his newfound friend's well-rounded knowledge of music, much more so than a classical musician with tunnel vision for his craft. I think most of us feel like we know more about music than a classical cellist, Bill jokingly said. With their personalities getting along, humor translating, even bonding over helping calm down a panicky passenger, it became clear these two really liked each other. And during the summer of 2016, Bill was in the middle of filming Monuments Men, primarily in Europe. Jan invited him to an experimental show he was playing at the Volkswagen factory in Dresden. Bill would later describe this experience as a symphony written for an orchestra and factory parts, all blended together for a straightforward and still abstract music performance. Bill thought that this was pretty unique. Shortly after, both men found themselves in New York, and Bill asked Jan to meet him at the Brooklyn Bridge at 5.30 on a particular day. It might sound curious, but this was for the Poets Housewalk, which is a yearly event that Bill's always a part of, in which people read before, during, and after the walk across the bridge. So Jan showed up to this, and then a few days later contacted Bill and said, You know, I think we could really do a show. You could talk and I could play. Thus, the idea was born. World-class violinist Mira Wang, also Jan's wife, and acclaimed pianist Vanessa Perez, who's previously collaborated with Jan, jumped on board for this project, both excited at the idea but really wondering how this was going to shake out. We're a group with a really good chemistry, good characters, and I guess it's a little like a film. You need a good cast before you can get together and start working, Jan said. The idea for Bill to go beyond spoken word atop accompanying music came to Jan when he saw 2016's The Jungle Book, which included Bill in the cast. I heard Bill sing and thought that this was actually the key to the program, Jan said. Sometimes it's very limited when an actor reads and the musician's play. Of course, you can overlap a little, but I think the charm here is really that we can switch from reading, singing, playing, and everything can become one thing. Something really different happens when you sing, Bill said of switching up his role. When you sing, you're expressing yourself, and it's a representation of yourself. So a plan's in motion, and the goal? To have something ready by June of the following year. The group met up in September of 2016 with ideas they'd shared over the previous weeks, literature and musical pieces to see what they could form. They had to trust that something would come out of this friendship. The show they created together has become an experimental collaborative experience, a blend of literature and music, and a show which changes with every performance. When Bill saw a recording of their first show in Berlin, like all of us band folk have experienced when seeing an early show, he noticed the aspects of his performance which needed a little improvement. The group toured in 2017 and 18, and produced the album New Worlds, which is a really wonderful experience to hear. It's so different from anything else. It's Americana storytelling done in such a beautiful style, and the music serves as the raft which carries you on this journey. There are instrumentals, well-known songs, and readings you'll recognize, but maybe there's a few you haven't heard before. It's pretty cute to see all of these musicians talk about Bill and vice versa. Bill downplays himself and says anyone can look good when you're in a group with such immensely talented folks. Jan and Vanessa have both remarked that what Bill brought to the table was everything about the atmosphere and mood, not to mention timing. His timing evidently changed everything about their musical arrangements. Bill is such a natural musician, Vanessa said. We were really a team and created this together. Bill's always been a collaborator from Second City to SNL to movies, but to narrow it down to just four collaborators, Bill says to have them all be world-class players, you feel pretty much like the Rolling Stones. And lucky for us, as of February 22nd, the documentary entitled New Worlds, The Cradle of Civilization was released. So now we can go behind the scenes of this entire experience. So for those of us who haven't gotten to see this group live, this is as best a substitute as we can get.
1: I like that Bill Murray's branching off more. This is sort of, this is in the same vein, but I guess similar in doing a variety with music like he did in uh, Very Murray Christmas.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally.
1: I wonder if this is something that uh, they would ever take on the road in the United States.
0: They've played a few dates, but not, uh, I think it's more of like a special event type of thing. Yeah.
1: Probably something that would never come to St. Louis.
0: I would hope that it would. I can't imagine that the setting would be somewhere that where tickets would be twenty bucks or anything like yeah, that. It no, would be yeah, yeah. It would be a very formal setting, but man, I think I'd I'd throw down to go to this.
1: Yeah. Hopefully I'll be able to catch the documentary sometime soon.
0: Yeah, it's really worth it.
1: Well thank you for that Murray moment.
0: Of course, anytime.
1: Well, the close things out here for the wedding singer, we were going to reveal our top five <laughs> Adam Sandler movies.
0: Where's my snare drum? I can do a drum roll.
1: I'll I'll cut in a drum roll here. (laughs) But uh, we're revealing our, not what we think are his best movies, but our favorite, our personal favorites, starting with our least favorite all the way down to number one, you know, being our most favorite Adam Sandler movie.
0: Okay. Well, um, I think I'm going to go with number five for me is 50 First Dates. All right. I went with this one because it has a little bit of that raunchy style, um, off-color comedy in his movies, a little bit of gross out. But there's just something about that magic between he and Drew Barrymore that is always going to get me.
1: My number five is a movie that's been very hated on, uh, That's My Boy, which I also picked because it's got the raunchy humor mixed with some lightheartedness, but it's probably Sandler's like hardest our movie I think okay. in a while that he's done because mm-hmm. this is like later a career Sandler I'm a big fan of Andy Sandberg and it's him and Andy Sandberg uh, playing father and son there's a lot of humor in here also we've got Vanilla Ice playing the uncle it's a wacky movie yeah but uh <laughs> if you can really get on board with the ridiculousness of it all it's one that either people haven't seen or they absolutely hate it
0: the Sandler Sandberg team up was a good idea yeah well, my number four is your pick of the week, actually. Just go with it. In thinking about it these last couple minutes, I think I got to go with this one over murder mystery. I think because murder mystery, if we're just talking about Sandler movies, murder mystery belongs to Jennifer Aniston more so than it does Sandler. So just go with it. So charming. Lovely.
1: My number four, I like it when Sandler goes serious, but my favorite of him going serious is uh, Punch Drunk Love, the Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Okay. It's a very bizarre movie. It's a good use of Sandler's angry guy character, but also reeling it in a little bit. And I think they temper it really well. I think it's like a solid, unique movie, 90 minutes, and it's still one of my favorites of his.
0: Excellent pick. I love that movie. My number three is, is it weird to pick my pick of the week in, in this? I mean, not at that's all. Not why at I all. chose to do it, but funny people. I love Sandler being serious. He's grumpy. He's rude, um, but he's got a lot of heart and funny people.
1: My number three, I'm getting down to like the sort of nitty-gritty classics here and that's uh, Happy Gilmore. Oh, okay. Um, just uh, all around, I still find this movie to be absolutely amusing. In some ways, it's a really good sports movie, mm-hmm. first off, and then a good comedy, and then a great villain, and I think Adam Sandler doing what he does best.
0: Man, I thought you were going to go with the Waterboy for number three. It was like a psychic vision I had, I guess. I yeah, wrong. you know,
1: I like Waterboy, but I think that character, he's riding the line of getting pretty grading with Waterboy, and I think with Happy Gilmore... He, he, there's little breaks there in between, and so I think Happy Gilmore's I I, I enjoy it much more than I do Waterboy.
0: Oh, I though love they, the though, Waterboy. I do
1: too, I do too. But and they are very similar films.
0: Well, my second favorite Adam Sandler movie is actually your number four. I love Punch Drunk Love. When I watched that again, as soon as the credits came up, I said out loud to no one else in the room, "That is a damn good movie. Such a unique plot." everything about it. And I love Adam Sandler in it. I felt very close to him in this role. Just a really great movie.
1: Well, My number two, the movie that started it all for Sandler, Billy Madison. Gosh. Uh, this movie for me is his most quotable. It's his most ridiculous. It's his most fun. Um, I I get endless joy from this movie. And this was the movie that really made me love Adam Sandler. And I still go back to it like on a yearly basis.
0: In rewatching all of his movies, this was one of the last ones that I rewatched. And when you throw on a bunch of Sandler movies in a row, sometimes you notice things that go throughout his films. He tries to squeak in Boy George everywhere he can in every one of his movies, and even in Billy Madison. Love it. Well, my number one favorite, it's not just because we're doing this episode, but it is A Wedding Singer. I can't get enough of this movie. It's going to make me tear up at the end. It's going to make me laugh every time. I love the story.
1: And we didn't plan for this, but my number one is The Wedding Singer it is? as well. Okay. Which, you know, is not a surprise. We picked it as our yeah. main feature. But this movie is all the things that make Adam Sandler, I think, a good actor, um, a great romantic lead, and, you know, fills a movie with a lot of heart but then also a lot of humor revisiting this movie over the last few weeks i've just gotten a greater appreciation for it i I think i love it more than i ever have and yeah number one sandler movie for me wedding singer
0: we really hope if you guys have just seen this movie once or not at all or maybe it's one of your favorites go out and watch it again there's never a bad time to watch this movie and hopefully we've given you a lot of fun backstory and created some intrigue Around it to make it a little bit fresher the next time.
1: We hope you've enjoyed our episode on Sandler. Uh, it's been fun. You know, I'm I'm ready to put these Sandler movies away. I feel <laughs> like I've just just been like a nonstop Sandler marathon. Um, I don't really get sick of them, but yeah, I'm I'm, I'm ready to to move on to something else. And what we're moving on to is a little bit bittersweet. We're still broken up about the recent passing of Ivan Reitman, um, but decided to do a tribute episode. So next up. Uh, we'll be trading in our Sandler movies for a big huge stack of Ivan Reitman movies. We'll be watching them uh, uh, one by one and hopefully put something together for you listeners to pay tribute to him and look at all of his films and his career and you know all the things that he did outside of just directing with uh, collaborating with people and producing. Really looking forward to that. Um, next up is the Ivan Reitman tribute. Also, if you haven't, please do follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. We also have a website, don'tpushpawespodcast.com. There you can find all of our archived episodes as well as on our YouTube channel. Please subscribe to the channel, Don't Push Pause Podcast. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson.
0: And I'm Lindsay Reber.
1: Thanks so much for listening.
0: Thank you, guys. I want to make you smile
2: whenever you're sad Carry you around when your arthritis is bad All I want to do is grow old with you I'll get your medicine when your tummy aches Build you a fire if the furnace breaks Oh, it could be so nice growing old with you I'll miss you, kiss you Give you my coat when you are cold Need you, feed you Even let you hold the remote control So let me do the dishes in our kitchen sink Put you to bed when you've had too much to drink Oh, I could be the man Grows mm-hmm. old with you